Uh, well, we have just celebrated our 50th anniversary of the, uh, um, a, a very significant event. Some of you might have seen the movie The Dish, uh, telling us about the moon landing, and uh, it brought back to me a reminder of a time when Carol and I were at Parks several years ago now, and we were in a group, uh, and we were listening to one of the resident scientists explaining some terrific uh, facts up there, and suddenly a man spoke up and said to the scientist, do you ever get Christians coming in here and telling you that God made all of this? And uh, of course Carol spoke up very quickly and uh, said, well, we're a couple of Christians and my husband is an Anglican minister. <clears throat> so I was rapidly thinking what I had to say and uh, the scientist rescued me and he said, well, as a matter of fact, he said, many of the, the resident uh, scientists here at this facility are people of faith. I'm not myself, but uh, he said a lot of people here go to church and I thought, what a good man he is to dispel the myth that there is uh, animosity between science and our Christian faith. I mention this little incident because one of the fascinating facts that this scientist mentioned relates a little bit to Psalm 19 and verse 3 of our reading today. And this is what this gentleman said. He said, the total energy of all of deep space uh, radio signals that have ever been picked up by all the radio telescopes on Earth is about the same energy as one raindrop falling to the ground. An astounding bit of information. What does it mean? Well, it means that deep space is very quiet indeed. We really know this for ourselves, don't we? If we go into the country, uh, away from the city noise and the city lights, uh, and look up at the nighttime sky, a majestic sight, and the stars seem to come closer in the darkness and when it's winter, uh, but they're absolutely silent to the human ear. What a good uh, question it is to ask, why are the heavens silent? If it were possible to get anywhere near the sun, it, it is so loud you couldn't describe it in decibels, I'm being, I've to been told by Google. Now, <clears throat> the first three verses of Psalm 19 again, and listen out for verse 3 that talks about the silence of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge, but they have no speech and they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Quite a powerful irony, isn't it, to say that the silent heavens speak, even stronger than that, verse 2, that they pour forth speech. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of our world. Psalm 19 is one of my favourites, and uh, it's impressive in so many ways. C.S. Lewis, I think it was his favourite psalm as well, he said it is the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics ever written. It is attributed to King David, uh, and I'm sure the beauty and power of the psalm had a lot to do with the night times that he spent in the mountains when he was a shepherd. I'm sure David became very familiar with the nightly display, 
uh, the passing parade of all the different constellations, uh, the phases of the moon, the milkiness of the Milky Way, uh, the stars that wandered about in their own little dance independently of all the other stars. Uh, we know them now to be planets. But what mysteries there were for David to behold uh, in that environment. And although David didn't know that the passage of all these stars across the sky was not because they were moving, but because planet Earth was rotating towards the east on its axis every 24 hours. And although David didn't know what we know now, he absolutely knew that this nightly display revealed the glory of the God of heaven. And this witness to the work of God's hands, uh, he says in this little passage, was both continuous and it was universal. Night after night, the message was proclaimed and the message went to the very ends of the earth. Not one creature anywhere uh, on the planet missed out on this display. And while the night sky displays a huge variety of objects, David mentions uh, the daytime in verses 4, 5 and 6, the daytime sky, and he mentions there only one object, but what an object it is, the sun, described poetically by David as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber in the finest array, uh, or like a champion, I think he has a vision of an athlete springing forth from the blocks, bursting away at dawn and making a glorious daily sweep across the whole breadth of the heavens uh, and pouring out in its passage light and heat to be a blessing to every creature on earth. These are inspired images that reflect the times in which David lived. But they are also timeless images, images which convey the power and beauty and blessing of the sun to our home, our planet. Now, in 2019, we know the sun in a different way. Uh, we can still describe it poetically, and it's been inspiring people to write poetically about it uh, down through <coughs> the millennia. Um, we know it, though, scientifically now. Uh, not completely, but we know a lot about it scientifically. We know that it's a massive nuclear furnace consuming tens of thousands of tonnes of hydrogen per second, converting it into helium, uh, and in the process, a little residual bit in that chemical equation comes out as pure, raging heat and light, all from the centre of the sun where the pressure is so great that uh, this uh, nuclear re reaction is happening. We know the sun as our parent star, which reaches across the vacuum of space and holds us very securely and very precisely in our orbit. We know the sun as a relatively young star, which is interesting. Old stars get red and they start enlarging, but this is a young white, whitish blue star. It's only um, burnt several billion hydrogen, tons of hydrogen every second for so long but it's still going to keep doing that for at least another five million years. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that it could be so big as to have that much hydrogen to still burn. These astounding figures and many other similar discoveries that we haven't got time to go into about 
our cosmos, they cause astrophysicists, astro meaning stars and physicists, uh, people who study the stars, it causes them to have feelings of religious awe. And I'm asking the question this morning, ought not they also increase our sense of wonder at the heavens and the work of God's hands and cause us to give renewed glory to God? David gave glory to God, not knowing any of the stuff that we know now. And these, these are extraordinary, fresh bits of information that ought to lift our praise of God as they progressively come forward from the world of science. The way I see it is that scientific progress is not threatening to our faith in any way, but each amazing new discovery ought to lift our praise of God. In modern times, we also know the sun not as an object that moves across the sky, but as a fixed star that only appears to move across the sky. And we've got to make a concerted effort to, to remind ourselves of that. You know, we see all these objects, we look up and they're there and half an hour later they're there and we, they look as though they're moving across the sky. When you get up in the morning though and you stand somewhere and you see the sun coming up over the horizon, you, sometimes you just got to consciously say the sun is not coming up over the horizon. I'm standing on a planet that is gradually rotating towards it and it gives the impression it's coming up. The same at dusk. It's not going down. We are rotating away from it. There's a lot of subtlety in God's creation uh, and I think physicists sometimes see that subtlety and love it and they love um, the beauty of it um, and they talk about, talk about it in almost a sense with a sense of religious awe. Now, if it's not enough just to stand and <clears throat> at dawn and dusk and be conscious that we are rotating, think about it this way. Dawn and dusk are special times of the day, aren't they? Photographers often love dawn and dusk. They do something for photography. But at dawn, the world is waking up. Uh, the light is driving away the darkness. It symbolises so much that is good, doesn't it? And the warmth coming to drive away the cold. A new day is the gift of God bringing fresh hope and opportunity to all mankind. And here's a truly amazing thing that I don't think I thought about for the first 50 years of my life. But that symphony of dawn and dusk is, as David said in this psalm, it is continuous. So as we sit here this morning, it's a dawning somewhere else, isn't it? and dusk is happening somewhere else. So dawn and dusk, like on opposite sides of the globe, are happening 24-7, just slowly as we rotate around the world. And that wonderful uh, image, I think, is quite inspiring to think about the glory of God and how he worked it all out. I'm sure many of you enjoy the enthusiasm of Professor Brian Cox as he explores and explains the many wonders and mysteries of the cosmos. These TV shows uh, keep on coming, you know. I've been watching them for a long time and you think, okay, we've seen all that now, we know all about the planets, but, you know, a decade later, there's brand new shows because the discoveries have improved dramatically and more moons have been discovered and visited by satellites and 
Uh, and so there's, there's room for another brand new show that shows us even more wonders. And that'll keep happening for a long time yet. Um, I think there's still many unknowns. Uh, I, I've been aware so often that the, the astrophysicists have said we are totally surprised by what we found on this particular moon around Jupiter. Just not expected at all. <clears throat> and I think there are many more surprises that are going to come. Now, you know, and dark matter and dark energy, I mean, the majority of, of, of space is dark matter and dark energy, and yet we, we just don't know what it is. So there's lots, lots of wonderful stuff to come. But think about David now. Let's go back uh, for David, the shepherd boy there. What was it about the night sky that captured his interest to the point where he was so inspired as to pen these beautiful and timeless words of Psalm 19? Uh, of course, the sheer brilliance of the night sky back then was something special. No light pollution. And today, you know, when we get the opportunity to go out back somewhere away from the city lights on a cold winter's night and you often hear people say you could almost reach out and touch the stars although they're you know light years away they just seem to be begging or hanging there inviting don't they so close you can almost touch them and David had the privilege of being away from all the pollution and light pollution and and city sort of influence on the atmosphere. So he was familiar with the constellations. They were like old friends to him every night as he spent uh, time in the mountains. The Pleiades, uh, Amos chapter 5 talks about the seven sisters and, uh, and Orion the hunter. Isn't it amazing to think here we are, you know, 3,000 years ago, there was David just looking up and seeing the same heavens that we are looking up to now their eternal and wonderful voice of God telling us of his glory. And what about the beauty of the full moon on the horizon? Well, David saw that too, and the clockwork waxing and waning of the moon, inviting David to say, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And then there's the so-called morning star, um, and it's sometimes the evening star. What is it? It's the planet Venus, the brightest object apart from the moon up there. And it wandered all over the place. The other stars, you could put them in a pattern, but the evening star and the morning star was in a different spot every few days. And David, again, is saying, why? Uh, it took a long while for the scientists to work that one out. <clears throat> and then came the occasional eclipse of the moon, <clears throat> or the appearance of a comet, or a shower of meteors, um, misnamed as shooting stars. What mysteries the heavens held for David and ancient viewers and sometimes what fear when the sun was blotted out in an eclipse of the sun or when violent lightning and thunder occurred. And of course, uh, to the ancients, you know, that was happening up in the heavens. It wasn't all that far away from where the stars were. So from our modern scientific understanding, David knew very little about these majestic heavens, about what they really were but he certainly knew they were a message from God and they declared God's majesty and glory. 
The question for us today is, I guess, have the heavens lost some of their magic because science has explained so much about the universe? And my answer to this question is a thousand times no. Uh, if it is the case, it shouldn't be. I say this because now we know a thousand times more about the cosmos than David did in his day. They are interesting beyond belief and they are complex and mysterious. The universe is infinitely larger than we ever could have dreamed and infinitely more powerful. So we ought not to be blind to this going on around us as our knowledge of the heavens is increasing almost day by day, so should our acknowledgement uh, be increasing of the glory of God that attaches to all of this fantastic new discovery. You know, the famous astrophysicist Paul Davies, not a Christian believer, said this. He said, even hard-nosed atheists frequently have a sense of reverence for nature a fascination with respect to its depth and beauty and subtlety that is akin to religious awe. And about himself, Paul Davies said, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it as a brute fact, i.e., I cannot accept it as just a happy accident from a blind process. And I'll tell you, I went to some lectures once by um, a cosmologist and he was pretty annoyed at Paul Davies for saying that because uh, he had a different view. But there's Paul Davies, not from a Christian perspective, but it said, I can't just accept it, you know. Um, it's so wonderful. Now, although these words come from a non-believer, they're not all that far away from David's words, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So why should modern astronomers be the only ones who are enjoying awe and reverence? Why should they be dancing around in excitement in their observatories at each new discovery and surprise and unveiling of all the mysteries that are out there? We modern city dwellers can no longer see the night sky with the brilliance that David enjoyed. Uh, last Saturday night, a couple of uh, David and Joe's girls had a birthday close by and we all uh, went out there to enjoy a little family get-together. And one of my other granddaughters, Hannah, said, I've never seen a shooting star. And so everybody said, well, just lie back in your chair and look up the sky for half an hour and you might get lucky. But... The skies are just not really good enough to see shooting stars very often and they're not shooting stars, are they? They're, so f they're only little specks of material, like a grain of sand coming into our atmosphere and vaporising because of the speed and the friction that is created. And if you've got a, uh, something as big as a marble coming into our atmosphere, it would put on a, quite a spectacular light show. But even those, you know, unless you've got a good night, um, it can be hard to see from the city. Well, if you live out mudgy or something, you can go out every night, especially in winter, and enjoy the night sky. We can, however, we can view the night sky through world, the worldwide array of fantastically large and high-tech telescopes in, uh, 
exceptionally uh, true of the Hubble telescope. Uh, my favourite Hubble image, and I'll show it to you here, I, I'm so low-tech, I should have had it put up on the screen, but I still like the, the plain old poster. And uh, this is an image taken by the Hubble telescope quite a few years ago now. Uh, it's something in the Eagle Nebula in the Milky Way galaxy. And it is, when this photo first came out, the first poster I saw, it had down the bottom pillars of creation. And I went to buy one, and by the time I got there, they had a new edition out, and they were calling it now Starbirth. So I don't know if there was any significance that they, they didn't like calling it creation. But this, it's called Starbirth or Pillars of Creation because it's a star-forming region at the top of this mighty dust cloud in the Eagle Nebula. And uh, if you... It's about 1.3 light-years from top to bottom. So that is a pretty big object, you know. If you travel at the speed of light for 1.3 years, that's how long it'll take you to get from there to there. And yet our telescopes, you've got to have a big telescope to even see this as a little dot in the night sky. And I had a mathematical friend and I said, how long would it take you to travel from this dot to that dot? They're kind of distant stars, not, not really on the same plane, but it's about a centimetre. And he went to work with his calculator and his mathematical mind and he came back and he said, travelling at the speed of a jumbo jet, about 1,000 kilometres per hour, would take you 27,400 years to go from there to there. So, doesn't that make us think, my goodness, God is a big God. And it raises the question, you know, why did God, why is the universe, why is the cosmos as big as it is? Uh, we don't really know the answer to that question, but maybe it's just to keep us humble. Uh, remember when they tried to build the Tower of Babel and they said, let us build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. We'll build this wonderful city and up we'll go. Uh, mankind is prone to thinking uh, that we might one day get the measure of God. Even Stephen Hawking, that great man, and I don't want to disparage him, I admire him greatly, but when he, not long after he wrote A Brief History of Time, he made a statement saying, I think we're only about 10 years away from the end of physics. 10 years, we'll know all there is to know about physics. And in 10 years' time, he said, I think I had a rush of blood. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, I think it's a gentle reminder that we, we're not on the brink of knowing everything. There's always a difference, isn't there, between the creator and the created, between an infinite God and us finite people. But even though we are finite, we've got brains and we need to use them to see the glory of God around us in his creation. And even that, you know, the fact that we've got brains to see, that's a wonderful gift, isn't it? The gift of mind that God has given us, of intelligence and understanding, the gift uh, for the love of learning and the love of discovery and invention, invention and the pioneering spirit, the gift of curiosity. Uh, we often take our, these abilities for granted. We shouldn't. I want to tell you my favourite quote from Albert Einstein. I've got a lot of favourite things. I'm a bit of a, I, I've never done any proper study 
at university in physics, but I'm just a hobby interest, so that's where I'm coming from. But I love recording these wonderful statements. And Albert Einstein said, the eternal mystery of the universe is its comprehensibility. Now, the thing he was wrestling with was, you know, the, the idea of a Big Bang that sent out all these subatomic particles in a blind rage, uh, 13 point something billion years ago, he's saying, how does, you know, human brains, comprehending human brains that we have now, how could they emerge accidentally and blindly from something that happened a long time ago that was non-comprehending, that was just elements uh, in a random kind of situation? So he said, that's the eternal mystery of the universe, and although he wasn't a Christian man, he was saying our comprehending minds are pointing us somewhere. So he's inviting us to think about it. Uh, so my message today is just a little bit strange, I suppose. I'm suggesting that we ought to catch up with um, the astrophysicists who are out there having a ball, enjoying the marvellous uh, cosmos. And... Just as David, the David Attenboroughs of this world have hijacked God's glory and handed it over to Mother Nature, so the astrophysicists of this world have tapped into beauty. And another word the physicists love, they love elegance. And they find elegance in mathematical equations and, and in things that they observe, they love it. But it points somewhere, elegance points somewhere, doesn't it? The majesty and mystery of the heavens and they do all this, the Attenboroughs and the Brian Coxes, without one mention of God, the author, of course, of the whole shebang. Well, astounding new discoveries will keep on coming, and some of them will be a total surprise to the world of astrophysics. Don't let them pass you by as inconsequential. Remind yourself of those great opening words of Psalm 19. Go back and read it uh, to give you inspiration. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. The heavens declare his glory. So David Attenborough and Brian Cox, they're very nice fellows, aren't they? I love watching their shows. But at the end of the day, their blindness to the glory of God is a little bit like a slow poison. Uh, so if you need an antidote, antidote like I sometimes do, think of David uh, and him sitting there on the hillside and his testimony uh, in Psalm 19 and join with him in giving to glory the glory to God for his wonderful creation. Thank you.